0: Good morning, IBC family. You know, we as people, and I would say especially we as Westerners, we love our privacy. That doesn't mean that we love every aspect of our life. You know, we don't intend every aspect of our life to necessarily be private, but we love our privacy, at least certain things of our life, certain aspects of our life. We like it to be uh, private or carefully disclosed to people that we are, caref- are carefully chosen. Now, it's obviously difficult to be totally private. I know some people try to do the whole like underground bunker thing, you know, and, um, and some people even claim to live off the grid. The irony of their whole statement is they claim to live off the grid online, and so... Technically, if you're online, you're not off the grid, and you are, you know, searchable. But the fact is, in the digital age which we live in, it's obviously difficult to keep or maintain our privacy. I mean, there's people that are on the dark web, right, that are stealing information and selling it to the highest bidder, and of course, you know, sometimes thousands and even millions of people are getting their identities stolen, it's very likely that statistically every one of our identities is somehow in someone else's hands just waiting to be used. Not to kind of unnecessarily unsettle you right now. But uh, the fact is, this is just the world in which we live. But that being said, we still desire to some degree, some way, shape, or form, we might differ depending on who we are in here, but we all desire to have some sense of privacy. For example... You, depending on how your relationship with your significant other is doing, perhaps you want that more private than not because, you know, depending on how it's going, that kind of maybe determines the nature in which you publicize or kind of retract any information. Or for example, uh, you have a certain medical condition and we don't like those things getting out. I know the whole medical world, in fact, uh, you know, is working extra time just to make sure that people's medical records are not in the, the wrong hands. Perhaps uh, you don't want to disclose your political view. Did you know statistically speaking, they say most people lie about their political views when asked, kind of on a one-on-one, because... Though they may have, you know, someone may have a certain perspective or stance on something, they don't necessarily, um, you know, depending on the momentum in our culture, they may not be as transparent or as honest as uh, they may actually be. Obviously, finances are something that we kind of keep to a, a minimum. We don't like just tell the world, unless you feel like you have a lot and you want everybody to know, and you're like, wow, look how much money I have. Isn't this amazing? Like, you like me, right? You like me? I get really lots of attention. The fact is, we like privacy. We don't want people to know certain things about our lives. That's the whole irony of social media sometimes, because we want to portray a certain persona to the world around us, and it's usually, it can be, not all the time, but it can be a persona that isn't actually real. It's the persona that we uh, maybe ideal ideally want to pursue it's the persona that we wish we would act that which would actually be true of us but it may not actually be true of us in the end we all desire certain degrees or various forms of privacy but there's one thing there's one aspect of our life that is never intended to be private There's one aspect of our life, regardless of where we stand on other facets of life, there's one aspect of your life, if you are a disciple of Jesus, that is always intended to be public. You probably know where I'm going with this, right? What do you think it is? Say it out there, come on. Your faith, yeah. Your faith is always intended to be public. It's never intended to be private. And this is really what Jesus is getting at at the conclusion of his introduction. Hopefully I didn't confuse you there. Uh, Jesus is concluding the introduction of his first sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, and he he says it very clearly after he's just completed uh, describing eight Beatitudes He therefore concludes in this way, you are now the salt of the earth, you are now the light of the earth. In other words, your faith is not intended to be discreet or hidden, but instead it is always intended to be socially recognized and socially felt. Now I understand that in our day and age, in our culture, it's very common or very savvy. The mantra, so to speak, is this, to each their own. In other words, you can believe what you want to believe. I will believe what I want to believe. It's just so long as you you, you can believe whatever. It's okay. It's okay to be even sincere about what you believe so long as you do not tell others. So long as you don't push it, so to speak, on others. So long as you don't try to convince others that they might actually be flawed in their thinking. But the fact is, If you, as a disciple of Jesus, were to effectively embody the eight beatitudes in verses 3 through 12, it will inevitably attract attention. If you embody, if you live out the beatitudes that Jesus just described for us at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, it will inevitably attract action or attention because righteous living always attracts attention. People cannot help but to take notice of someone whose values and whose priorities and whose way of life are so contrary maybe to their own. When I worked on the pipeline, I uh, worked on the pipeline as you, many of you already know, um, seasonally for 10 years, did it through undergrad, did it through seminary, it was a great seasonal job and where I get to kind of, take a break from classes and just work a lot and make a bunch of money and pay for all my schooling, which was great. It was an awesome uh, setup in my life and I really appreciate God for providing that for me. But I'll tell you what, it was a challenge at times. Can you imagine, I, I go from seminary world I, and I left early, had to get finals done early, leave. I just go to Seminary World and I come off the plane and it was just like I got, have you ever gone into like Houston, Texas? You know, you're, you, maybe you're from Alaska, you're from the Northwest here and you're like, yeah, I, I like heat, you know, and then you just step off the plane in Houston, Texas and you just hit this wall of humidity and heat like you've never felt before. In a parallel fashion, I would come off of seminary world, thank you, Jesus, God is good, God is great, he's the best, let's all live for the glory of God. Literally, the first words out of the mouth of my boss would pick me up is, F-bomb this, F-bomb that, Expl- expletive, 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 oh my goodness, I'm not in seminary anymore. <laughs> and although on one hand I wasn't surprised, I wasn't shocked and awed because I knew what I was walking into. I'd worked for 10 years. It wasn't like it was like, I can't believe they are talking like this. But at the same time, it was still kind of a, whoa, here we go again, you know, and I had to kind of like get used to just kind of letting those things just kind of go in one ear and out the other. But what was interesting is one of the ways in which I developed a reputation on the pipeline, even though I was leading many crews and, um, you know, it, it was a great opportunity. I loved what I did the very fact that I did not talk like everybody else, that I didn't have to say a four-letter word to describe everything, the very fact that I would just not have to say those things made me stand out. And people took notice. Not because I asked them, like, hey, did you notice I was not swearing? No, but because people actually said, like, You know, I I noticed that you, literally one guy said, I noticed that you don't talk like we do. You don't talk like me. I'm like, really? All because I chose not to use the same form of language that they chose. Now granted, I come off by the end of the summer and it didn't phase me as much. You become kind of a calloused in a sense to what you're hearing. But it was just one way in which my values and my priorities as a disciple of Jesus allowed me to stand out or to live a life that was contrary or contrasting to the values of the world. You see, the reason why Jesus says, or the reason why Jesus desires that our faith be put on display, the reason why he intends our faith to be public and therefore not private is because he desires that you and I would live a life that influences people, that influences the world for God and for the good of this world. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter two, he says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, listen to this, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death and to other, a fragrance from life to life. And so Jesus basically, in order to emphasize this point, he, uh, he emphatically tells his disciples by giving them two metaphors. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the earth. Now what, what is Jesus getting at? What, what is he intending to imply? I mean, although on one hand I've kind of already said it, but what is he really getting at when he describes his disciples And it's not just a 12, it's all those listening. That you are the salt and you are the light. Well, first we need to establish the foundation in which we're gonna build upon. And first we need to understand that uh, a biblical worldview of the world is that the world is morally corrupt and spiritually dark. Let me say that Again, a biblical worldview of the world is that the world is morally corrupt and spiritually dark. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says to his protege, Timothy, he says, understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Whew. I think that includes everybody or everything. And Paul says, avoid such people. The point that Paul's getting at, the point that we need to establish first and foremost is that The world, the biblical understanding of the world is that the world is morally corrupt and therefore also spiritually dark. In other words, the world is not getting better, it's getting worse. I know some people and I know the idea is that if we can just make the world a better place and I'm not opposed to the idea, trust me. I want the world to be a better place. I hope you want the world to be a better place. I pray that you pray that the world would be a better place, but we must have a biblical understanding of what the Bible teaches, and that is this, that things are going to go from bad to worse. And if you don't believe me, just read the second half or the second two-thirds of Daniel, Ezekiel, and also the entire book of Revelation. It will tell you what to anticipate even as paul will later say in second timothy 3 he says people will go uh, evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived Now the irony is that you and I are under this kind of like living in a reality in which we are experiencing the most advanced technology and the most advanced medical technology and probably the most advanced education and uh, the most basically advanced everything. I mean we have these like extremely powerful computers in our pockets. Hopefully they're in vibrate right now. And we can do any number of things right at the tap of our thumb. So on one hand, we are well advanced in so many different ways, but that does not mean that our nature has somehow rebounded, that somehow we've put enough laws in place to keep people in a morally God-honoring center direction. No, in fact, we see that people are going from bad to worse. But thankfully, thankfully, God is not alarmed. In fact, God is not silent. In fact, God has a plan. And so what we see is that God's response to the corruption in this world and and the wickedness in this world is the cross of Jesus and the influence of his disciples. In other words, God's response, God's plan for the corruption because sin entered the world, his plan is first and foremost the cross of Jesus and secondly and following really the disciples of Jesus. Just last week, we celebrated the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hopefully we're celebrating that every single day. Every single weekend we come together, but last weekend we got to take special time to focus on what God did in Christ for you and for me. What we must understand as disciples of Jesus is this. The cross of Jesus is the climax of human history. The cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus is literally the climax of human history. It is the the most significant event that has ever happened and that ever will happen until the return of Christ. 4,000 years leading up, already promised in Genesis chapter 3, finally fulfilled 4,000 years later at the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus himself, And now 2,000 years from that point, we are looking back in hindsight so that we might better and more effectively look ahead in anticipation of how God is going to redeem and culminate his redemptive plan. It all begins with the cross, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, but secondly, It also, God's plan or response to the wickedness in this world is the influences influence of Jesus' disciples. In other words, what Jesus began continues through you and me. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. When Jesus says "you," he's referring to all disciples of Jesus. To kind of flip the coin around so we have crystal-clear understanding, Jesus is not saying that some people are disciples, some disciples of Jesus are salt, and some disciples are not salt. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that if you are a disciple of Jesus, then you are salt and you are light. And he's also not saying that you are becoming salt and light. He's not saying he wishes that you would one day become salt and light. He is establishing matter-of-factly, emphatically, with a big exclamation mark, you are salt, you are light. In fact, I love the definite article he uses. He doesn't say you are one of many kinds of salt, like we have today. He's not saying you are one of many kinds of light. He is saying you are the salt, Definite article, not, which basically means that just because you may have a philanthropic approach to life, just because you may care about social justice and social needs, that does not mean you are salt and light. It does not mean that you are, in fact, doing anything for the kingdom of God. Jesus makes it very clear that you are the salt and You are the light of the world. So God's response is basically this. And when he sees the corruption, when he sees the wickedness, his response isn't a response of of indifference. It's a response of love. And he sends his son to die so that he might save us from our sins. And then he says, now I want to use you to bring that light. I want to use you to win people to faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says in John 17 when he prays to his heavenly father, he asks, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As you have sent me in the world, so I have sent them into the world. Here's the deal, IBC family. The hope of this world is that you and I will live as we are called. The hope of the world is that you and I will live our lives in such a way that is consistent with the salvation that we have already received. To live our lives in such a way that we bring the light of Jesus to a dark and to a dying world. Now how exactly do we do that? We might have our own ideas We might already be doing that in some way, shape, or form, but how does Jesus say to do it in our text here this morning? First of all, he establishes this. He says, we influence, we bring hope by our presence. We influence the world by our presence. This is what Jesus refers to when he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, obviously, we're not gonna go into salt 101 here and understand all the different things about salt and we're not going to open up i'm not going to open up my one of my chemistry books and talk about sodium and chloride here and how they are chemically you know attached to one another through different electrons but we do understand that both in our day today as well as in the days of jesus salt had many 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 uses It was a very valuable commodity. In fact, we see that salt was oftentimes used as another form of barter or or monetary unit. If you didn't have gold, if you didn't have silver, you could use salt because it was that valuable. We see that salt uh, also was used for wound care. In other words, when you had some kind of wound, you would actually preserve or keep the germs out by rubbing salt into it. We see that salt enhances flavor if you look at any of the back of the box or any kind of like nutrition label there's always salt I love salt have you ever had fries without salt (laughs) have you ever had chips without salt I only eat chips for the salt forget the I like the crunch but the salt is where it's at probably too much so when we, go, when we went swimming in Alaska, the ice would melt, and it was time to go swimming. Basically, there's a, there's a hole in the ice. It's time to go swimming. I know. I was very confused as a young child. <laughs> I think that's pretty normal, right? But the fact is, here's what we would bring to the lake when we go swimming. You bring your towels, you bring your shorts, hopefully you remembered those. Uh, you bring your flip-flops maybe you bring your goggles, perhaps, because you'd spend literally all day on the water. And you brought a container of salt. You know why? Because in Alaska waters, sometimes there's leeches. Ooh, I know, leeches. They attach onto you. And here's the thing about leech. This is leechology 101. You don't pull a leech off your leg if it's already attached, stuck in your blood. That's not good. What you do is you pour salt on it, and it gladly retracts its prongs off your skin, and tries to escape because it's shriveling up. I mean, if you have, we have slugs here in the Northwest in Washington, so you just put salt right on them. It works wonders. Kids, this is your science experiment. Find the next slug, put some salt on it, see what happens. And I'm sorry, PETA, for listening to this. The fact is, salt had many, many, many uses. In fact, I read this statistic, and I haven't verified if it's true, but It was in one of the commentaries I read. It said, there are more wars fought over salt than gold. More wars fought over salt than gold. Point being, salt was very valuable. It was very important. But I say all that because that's not what Jesus is getting at. You see, what... What Jesus is seeking to emphasize here when he says you are the salt, he's actually referring to the preservation qualities of salt, which is another, probably the the most important aspect of salt. You see, historically speaking, in the pre-freezer, pre-refrigeration days, before they were kind of harvesting ice even in that matter, They would rub salt in food, especially in meat, so that it would cure it, but also it would preserve it or at least slow the process of decay. That's what salt does. It slows decay. It doesn't stop decay, but it dramatically slows the process in which food goes bad or spoils so that you you can have food in your winter months. And what I believe Jesus is emphasizing here Because we understand or have a biblical worldview of the world, that the world is corrupt, that it is dark, that it is going from bad to worse, what Jesus is saying that when he says, you are the salt of the earth, he's not just just implying, though he probably is in part, he's not just saying that, hey, you know what, be flavorful, be attractive. Yes, that's true. But I believe primarily speaking, what he's emphasizing is, your presence matters, You are the salt. The very fact that you live and that you are a disciple of Jesus, that you are carrying around Jesus with you everywhere you go, you by your very presence are slowing the decay of this world. You are slowing the progress of wickedness. If we were to understand it in this way, think about it like this. If all the believers disappeared on the face of this earth, How quickly do you think things would go from bad to worse? I think very quickly. But the very fact that you are here, the very fact that you are present, the very fact that you are a spokesperson, a witness for Jesus, means by your presence, you are in part slowing the decaying process and wickedness of this world. In the most practical ways, what this means is that you being a disciple of Jesus ought to have a radical influence on how you live. In other words, you ought to be noticeably distinct from the world. What you listen to, what you watch, what you wear, how you talk to others, how you spend your money All these things are influenced because you are a disciple of Jesus. I'm not talking about legalism here. I'm not talking about, oh, the do's and don'ts of Christianity, here we go again, do this and God loves you, don't do this, God doesn't love you as much. No, that's not true. That's not even biblical. Legalism is this, it's doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, Legalism is doing the right thing or being obedient but motivated out of a belief that God loves me more if I do them. But righteous living, godly living, is doing the right thing because you've already received the acceptance of God because God already loves you and therefore in turn you're doing because you love God. The right kind of obedience and we'll get, this, get to this in Matthew 6. The right kind of obedience is being obedient because you love God. Not because you have to Obey God. Because of your presence, because of your saltiness, your sphere of influence ought to be better because you were there. As I reflected on it this, this past week, even some of the context in which I find myself, I came up with these statements people should be able to conclude that your neighborhood is better because you live there. People should be able to conclude that your place of work is more enjoyable because you work there. People should be able to conclude that someone's dinner was more enjoyable because you served them. people should conclude that they are more encouraged in life because they interacted with you. It sort of raises some questions, however. For example, what, what if I'm not living a life that is noticeably distinct from the world? What, what if I'm not Living a life where, what if my values and choices and priorities are really no different than the world in which I live? What if my, prefer- prefer- uh, my presence makes no spiritual difference at all? What does that say about my saltiness? Let me illustrate it this way What do you do when your gum has lost its flavor? Do you put it back in its wrapper? Anxious to eat it again at another point? No, you throw it away. Because it's done. It has no more value or use. This is what Jesus says when he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It can't. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, not to get too technical here, but salt cannot actually become saltless. Salt does not lose its flavor. If it loses its flavor, it ceases to be salt. The reason why salt is salt is because it's N-A-C-L. That's the compound. And that that compound that's chemically combined always tastes like salt. If it doesn't taste like salt, it's no longer that compound. It might be a combination of other compounds, but it's, it has to be that compound. But although sodium or salt has a certain distinct flavor, it can become contaminated. In fact, it was very common even in Jesus' day when they would harvest salt from the Dead Sea. By the way, even to this day, they make billions of dollars off of salt harvesting around the Dead Sea. But even in Jesus' day, they would harvest salt and some salt was pure and some salt was not pure and that salt that was not pure was usually combined with other, there was other minerals that it was attached to chemically and therefore because the, the, the salt was considered impure, it was also at the same time considered worthless, unusable, in fact, they wouldn't even put it in their gardens because it would actually uh, cause more damage and so all they said it was worth more is they'd just throw it out on the street and it would eventually just become crushed, turned into powder under the feet of people. I think what Jesus is getting at here is in a parallel way, you don't cease to become a Christian, you don't lose your salvation, but you can Become contaminated by the world. In other words, this isn't a question of salvation, but it's a question of influence. One pastor put it this way he says, We cannot change what we are, but we can waste what we are. And although you may be a disciple of Jesus, the question is, are you a salty disciple? Are you a flavorful disciple? Are you one in which, by your very presence, you are preserving, withholding the wickedness that is so rampant in our world. So we influence our fallen world and, and by slowing the process of spiritual decay, by our presence, but we also influence the world by our conduct. We influence by our presence and we influence by our conduct. This is what Jesus means when he emphatically says you are the light of the world. You're a city set on the hill. It's not intended to be covered but it's intended to be on full display. The point of light is that light illumines. It, 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 uh, it, it displaces darkness. It exposes and it reveals. And just like our faith is intended to be public so also light is intended for all to see. Now, spiritually speaking, we need to understand it in its proper context. When he says that you are the light, we also need to interpret scripture through scripture. And we see also that Jesus himself is the light. John 1 9 says, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus says explicitly in John 8, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. John 9, 5, while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. So in other words, when we look at scripture, we understand that Jesus is the light. You are not the light. Jesus is the light. But that being said, we are a reflection of that light. Just as Jesus began his ministry 2,000 years ago and as it continues through us today, though Jesus is the true light and the source of light, we are a reflection of that light. You might have heard the illustration before, but just as the moon reflects the sun, so you also reflect the sun. You are not the light, but you are a reflector of the light. Your presence not only slows moral decline wherever you're at, but it also, by your conduct, your light is a reflection of Jesus. That reflection has really kind of, well, probably multiple implications, but there are two implications I'm going to describe here for us this morning. First of all, by your conduct, by your light, you expose the wickedness In the world. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to walk or talk about things that are ungodly, that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed. When the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. By your conduct, and even as we described it at the very end of the Beatitudes, by your conduct, by you living a life that is consistent with your salvation... By embodying these beatitudes, you will inevitably attract attention because you will, in one sense, expose the wickedness because your priorities, your values, your way of life are so contrasting to the values and priorities of this world. Not only can people not help but take notice, but they might even hate you for it because you're making them look bad by the way in which you live. But on the other kind of side of the coin, the flip side of the coin is this. Your conduct is also used to be a guide to the blind so that you might win them to Christ. When Jesus says that you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be be hidden, it's not intended to be kind of put covered and, and discreet in the corner somewhere, but it's meant to be on full display so the world might see you, In other words, Jesus says, through your influence, I want to win many other people to Jesus. Through your influence and through your presence, through the way in which you live righteously, I want to win many other people to faith in Christ. My response to the corruption in this world is you. You've heard it said before this way. The darker the light, or the dark the the darker the environment, the brighter the light. It doesn't take much light to be noticed. If you've ever flown around on a commercial jet at night, you can tell where the the cities are, you know, from a thirty thousand foot perspective. And then sometimes you kind of go into parts of the country where it's just black and you can't see a thing. And you can only imagine the vantage point of the pilot when he's coming into a runway and usually most runways are not right in the heart of a city but they're outside on the outskirts of the city and can you imagine? Have you ever seen a runway not lit up? It'd be a disaster. But what allows people to land safely in these jets is the fact that the runway, even though it may be very dark, it's still lit up. It doesn't take much light to guide people to safety. And God says, you are the light of the world. He says, my plan is that you would be a continuation of what I've already begun and, for the, and the purpose is this, so that people may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Once again, it's all about the glory of God. Everything God does is for the glory of his name. It's why our vision even says we do all things for the, glorify, the glory of God. We want to glorify God in all things and learn to to delight in him in everything. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God is glorified when you shine brightly. When he can use you as a faithful vessel, a faithful tool to win people to faith in Jesus Christ. There's a story of a young Scottish girl who, when she was converted to faith in Jesus, had a pretty dramatic effect in her context. This girl, Helen, who, um, when she became a Christian, she was so zealous for the Lord that everybody she talked to, she got into a spiritual conversation. And she was so excited about Jesus that she's like, I need to go to places where they have not yet heard, where they have a difficult time hearing, and so at that time she was gonna go to Russia. She learned the Russian language, she was zealous to go. Missionaries going, Man, God is gonna do so much through her. And then she died at age twenty two. And she even said, according to one commentator, that all of Scotland wept as a result of her death. Only 22 years old. How can a 22 year old have so much impact in the lives of people? It's said of her that she had no obvious gifts like speaking or writing and she never really traveled far from home. She didn't have a a worldwide perspective on life. She wasn't uh, cultured in a sense. Yet by the time she died at age 22, she had already led hundreds to faith in Jesus. And when you read her diary, you see over 300 missionaries by name that she prayed for every single day. She got up at 5 o'clock every day to study the word and to pray for people by name. It's said of her that everywhere she went, the atmosphere changed. If someone was telling a dirty story, it would stop immediately as soon as they saw her coming. If people were complaining, they would become ashamed of it in, their pre- in her presence. Even an acquaintance of, her, acquaintance of her said that when she was at Glasgow University, she was like the fragrance of Christ. Everywhere she went, she influenced the atmosphere that she walked into. Let me ask you this, IBC family. How might the places you walk into be influenced for God and for good because you were there? How might the people you meet be influenced for God and for good because they met you?